Every year, we bring together a group of incredible people for three days of conversation and networking at the Code Conference. This year, Code is back in Los Angeles, and I'll be speaking with the people at the forefront of tech, including European tech regulator Marguerite Vestager, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, and Google CEO Sundar Pichai. And we've just announced that Disney CEO Bob Iger will be joining me on stage for a live interview about what comes next for one of the world's biggest media companies. And fine, I guess we can talk about Baby Yoda, too. If you're an executive, you can apply to attend the Code Conference at events.recode.net slash code, or just tap the link to the application in the show notes. Hope to see you there. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks once time travel is invented, Silicon Valley will find a way to screw it up within three months tops. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Annalie Newitz, a celebrated science journalist and novelist whose first book, Autonomous, was about AI tech, biotech, and drug hacking. Their most recent book is called The Future of Another Timeline, and it's about why traveling through time to undo a murder isn't as easy as it sounds. Previously, Annalie also was a founding editor of io9 and editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. Annalie, welcome to Recode Decode. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to talk about a lot of things, obviously this book and everything else, but why don't we give people your background? Because you have a really fascinating way that you've come up to write about this stuff. So why don't you talk about your history a little bit and how you got to sort of becoming both a novelist and you also write for the New York Times. You're a contributing opinion writer along I am too. Yeah. Um, you're smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> I think we're equally you're, smart. You're a smarter lady, <laughs> um, the person, excuse me. So talk a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I did take a pretty winding path to get here. Um, I actually started in academia, so Mm -hmm. I was like a professor back in another century. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been studying representations of science and technology in the media um, as an academic. And then I was like, you know— This was where? This was at— This was at Berkeley Mm -hmm. um, at UC Berkeley. And why were you interested in that? Well, I was really interested in how popular culture can help to— shape people's opinions about the world, but also how it reflects our opinions. And I was specifically really interested in how 
economic trends were kind of working their way into popular movies and Mm -hmm. how people expressed their fears and anxieties. And I don't mean like that there was a direct link that somebody was saying, gosh, I'm feeling really scared about becoming poor. I think I'll make a movie. Um, These kinds of connections are obviously really tenuous. But there is, uh, undeniably, you see these trends in film production where during economic downturns, you see certain kinds of films. So I was really interested in basically just how people are terrified of economic change Mm -hmm. and how that shows up in in stories about monsters and, and science and stories about robots. And, um, Which has a long history. It's such a different, you know, it, it's, oh, it's shifted so clearly. Although recently I was talking lot, yeah. about my kids of how many Godzilla movies destroying San Francisco. And I want to under, we wanted to understand what that meant. Like a lot of <laughs> destruction of San Francisco. Which yeah, was, well, the American movies destroy San Francisco. But, of course, the Japanese movies all destroy Tokyo. Tokyo, of course, so, you know, as it's, they should. It's, yeah, it's, it's basically just destroy the city that's closest to the Pacific that, you know, maybe is associated with tech production. Tech production. So, yeah. All right. So you're writing about this idea of, of our, our images of robots and things like mm-hmm. that. Did you come up with any conclusion that it just changes over time? Um, yeah. I mean, basically, the conclusion was that you can absolutely see a shift in how people tell certain kinds of stories. And so what I did in my dissertation, which later became a book from Duke University Press, which is called Pretend We're Dead, if you feel like finding a really deep cut from my past. Oh, wow. Um, I took five different kinds of monster stories, mm-hmm. and I traced them from their earliest incarnations in the late 19th century up through the present. Which so you have the, to, Frankenstein would be one of them. So, no, yeah. it was actually, um, Frankenstein definitely fits in, mm-hmm. um, but I was looking just at the United States, mm-hmm. and so I was looking at the undead, so mm-hmm. lots of zombies and vampires. I was looking at cyborgs and robots, um, serial killers, a very popular monster, mm-hmm. um, and mad scientists. And so I looked at how movies and TV and popular books kind of treated those characters over time. And you see these really dramatic changes. And the monsters come to embody different kinds of anxieties. And so you see, for example... Um, you know, early zombie movies like the classic, which everyone really should see, the film I Walked with a Zombie, which is, it has a terrible name, but it's mm-hmm. actually a really nuanced, interesting film about post-colonialism in the Caribbean. And the zombies are basically created by people who have who are the descendants of freed slaves on a plantation, and they turn the white daughter of the plantation owner into a zombie. And it's mm-hmm. this kind of um, clear story, sympathetic story of revenge against these plantation owners or the children of these plantation owners. And then later in the U.S., you start seeing films like in the 1960s, like uh, Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. where, again, it's kind of scary white people who become zombies, mm-hmm. but it's framed really differently. Um, you also, in that film, have a, a heroic black character who's mm-hmm. eventually, spoilers for an ancient movie, murdered. Um, and it becomes these different ways that audiences, I think, imaginatively thought about the legacy of slavery in the mm-hmm. U.S. and the legacy of r- race relations, but projected into this sort of fantasy realm. Anyway, so lots of stuff happens like that with monsters where you see these sort of changing images. And so the conclusion I reached was simply that um, a lot of horror movies deal with fears around economics and fears around right. class. Um, and usually when people talk about horror movies, they think about 
you know, fear of sex or fear mm-hmm. of women. You know, people talk about the alien movies being like, oh, my gosh, it's about scary childbirth stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. But I'm really interested in how people are, are worried right. about And the money. ones about tech have always been about dystopian futures, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you look at the figure of the cyborg and the robot, they also change a lot. And there's very utopian images of robots. There's lots of robot romance movies, even going back to, like, the 80s, there was a really weird movie called Making Mr. Right about how yes, the only good boyfriend can be is a robot boyfriend, no, obviously. That's fair. That's a fair um, assessment. And it, it probably is. And I think, you know, you start seeing things like the second Terminator film, which is also about how the only good dad is a robot. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this weird way of thinking about changing family relationships, maybe creating kind of queer families or found families. So it's not always dystopian. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a, a very utopian side to it. And then, of course, there's also the problem of, you know, the robot uprising and, you mm-hmm. know, crushing the people. And right, like right. That. that part. Oh, that part. Oh, that part. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and there's also, of course, the mad scientist also is often trying to, you know, destroy the world or mm-hmm. kind of remake humanity. And so I went from thinking about stuff like that in academia, which may sound pretty far removed from reality, to thinking about how I could, as a journalist, create new images of tech and science in the media, you know, truthful images, not necessarily fictional. Um, And so I started my career um, writing for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which was um, a free weekly paper paper. Yeah. (laughs) It actually, people always say, it was such a an old-fashioned idea to have a paper paper, but the business model of the San Francisco Bay Guardian was the exact same business model as blogs and digital yes, it media. Was. Yep, I worked all, for City Paper in Washington D.C. Yeah, it's so all I'm very familiar. Ad supported, ad supported, classifieds. So yeah, classifieds, but also just regular advertisers, mm-hmm. you know, um, display ads and things like that. So I kind of moved from ad-supported media uh, on paper to ad-supported media online, and worked for you know blogs after that. Um, which now sounds really old-fashioned, too. Blogs. I know. I, I just I read a piece the other day that was nostalgia for blogs. <laughs> Can we bring them back, please? <laughs> they are back. They're just, they just got they got put Small. pulled into the Borg. Essentially, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're still around. I mean, that's what everyone's that's what everyone does now is blog, but yeah. they just don't call it that. Now we just call it journalism, journalism. again, or yeah. op-ed, or yeah, depending exactly. on what it is. So, so one of the things your book Autonomous was about AI, biotech, and drug hacking. So you started. What was of interest to you here? This was early on. You we're starting to talk about these issues. Yeah, and so I think what happened was um, while I was working at io9 um, and I was doing science reporting and editing. And these were course, sites that wrote about, to explain what io9 Sorry, back in the day right. of blogs. Um, well, these are changing. Yeah, they are. So io9 was owned by what was then called Gawker Media, mm-hmm. um, which is now, I can't even keep up with what it's called. But it Fusion owns it? Gi- owns it? Gizmodo Media, Gizmodo. now it's like G Media. Whatever. Anyway, it's owned by some kind of investment firm and uh, but at any rate, io9 is still around, and we founded it um, back in, like, 2008 to cover science and science fiction. So right. we were covering both the nonfiction side and the fiction side of the scientific project. And I was working on the science side. Um, I was running the whole site, but I was really focused on the science. But in the process, I kind of rediscovered my love of of writing fiction, which I'd really left behind in high school. Like, mm-hmm. I, hadn't, I hadn't really written fiction since then. And so at a certain point— I accidentally started writing a novel. I mean, it it sounds kind of silly to put it that way, but uh, I started putting ideas down, and I was like, oh, this is fiction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe I'll try doing this. 
Um, and so I, it was a classic thing of I wrote it and I put it in a drawer for several years. Um, and then when Tor Books, my current publisher, contacted me and asked me if I had anything, I was like, actually, I do. And so that was kind of how it started. I mean, it obviously, the book was garbage. It needed to be rewritten and, and kind of smacked around. But I was interested in the topics of AI and um, the pharmaceutical industry and medical patenting, which is a big part of the book's plot, um, for a long time. Um, I'd been covering it as a journalist. Um, when I worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation as a policy analyst briefly, uh, we were uh, dealing a lot with patents and, mm -hmm. and sort of software patents and the unfairness around software patents. And that was what kind of introduced me to the fact that intellectual property law can really be used to screw the little guy mm -hmm. um, and and all the different kind of nefarious ways that big companies can kind of expand their patent libraries um, without really doing any work just by suing people. And so that kind of became the seeds of this book that's about uh, a patent pirate who is ripping off uh, big pharmaceutical companies and finally rips one off that's so pissed that they send a robot assassin after her, which, mm -hmm. as you do, you know, mm -hmm. it's the future. Yeah. So it's so, a female Nathan Muirold, but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that became, yeah, my first novel was this kind of um, uh, techno thriller set in the future. And, um, you know, we follow both the robot and the pirate and kind of get both of their perspectives as they're trying to navigate this relationship and, uh, and yeah, it really, it scratched a lot of itches that I couldn't in journalism because in journalism, unless you're writing an op-ed piece, you really have to report the facts and not right. sort of inject your opinion right. about, like, I think all this is garbage bullshit that's yeah. going to lead to dystopia. Right. Um, not really fair to do that in, a, <laughs> in, a, in an actual piece of journalism. So I could, uh, in fiction, do all that kind of stuff that I'd been kind and of storing And you had been covering up. medical patent issues. Um, I had covered it a little bit. It was actually kind of a departure for me to do it in, that, in fiction. I had been covering some stuff around patents. I'd covered a lot of biotech innovation. Right. But I hadn't, you know, unlike a lot of reporters who really dedicate themselves to looking at, like, the policy side, I was really covering the innovation side. And then I would—but I would hear little bits. Like, I would interview people, and they would talk about their frustrations, about mm -hmm. how if you're trying to develop uh, a new technology, um, how difficult it can be if you don't have enough money to kind of license stuff, or how if you develop something, you risk being sued by someone. Mm -hmm. um, or also, from the other side, how a lot of people who wanted to develop— uh, essentially open source technologies um, or, or, or open source therapies would get pushback from their institutions saying, no, you need to patent this. Right. And they would be saying, well, but this is for the good of humanity. Right. And their bosses would be like— This is for the good of us. Yeah, this right. is the rules. Like, you you patent this shit. Right. So, um, so that I had— th again, that was all stuff that I had been kind of hearing on background from people. And mm -hmm. so I was able to, you know, make it into the foreground of my fiction. So what got you into this latest book, the, the, the concept, The Future of Another Timeline? Um, that was another accident. <laughs> um, I had been wanting to write for a long time um, an alternate history that was going to be kind of set where I grew up in Southern California about uh, an alternate timeline where abortion never became legal in the United States. And I kind of assumed that if that were the case, there would just be you know, gangs of teenage girls running around murdering men. Because, mm -hmm. you know, that just sort of made sense to me somehow. <laughs> That's why I love this book. Um, yeah, it's like, it's some, like I said, it's somehow in my brain that made sense because it would have created much more extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so, and these characters are already very radicalized and, and punk. And so, um, but as I was 
sort of tackling the book and thinking about how to do it, I kept asking myself, well, what created this alternate timeline? And that was when I realized I had to do time travel because that would make it much more interesting for me to write. And I thought also it would allow for a good way uh, to talk about historical change. How do you change history? Um, in a sense, we're, we're always doing that and we're always time traveling. So. Yeah. I don't know that you know this about Kara Swisher, but she's obsessed with time travel. If uh-huh. I had to invent anything, it would be time travel. And Back and, from Ray Bradbury's book, remember, remember that story when he goes back and messes up all of time by mm-hmm. killing a butterfly? The Sound of Thunder, yeah. That changed. That, I was like eight, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so you're not afraid of time travel, though? No. Because if that's your model no. of time travel. No, like, no, you're, time and again. I like the whole concept of, you know, whatever that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow that was actually good, the closing doors or <laughs> uh-huh. opening doors or whatever mm-hmm. you call it. Um, no, I'm obsessed with it. And we're going to talk about it when we get back. We're here with Annalie Newitz. They're the author of The Future of Another Timeline. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Annalie Newitz, the author of The Future of Another Timeline. We're going to talk about this book and about time travel, which I just noted was a huge obsession of Kara Swisher's. Talk about the plot of this, because it's a great plot. It's a really fantastic plot. It's a really complicated plot, which yes, is exactly is. what happens. Time travel is yeah, what Whenever be. you get into time travel, and I knew that was going to be a big issue, so I, I plotted it out very carefully and then, of course, screwed everything up. We but, don't have to. Terminator made nine movies, none of which made any sense. Yeah. A few of them kind of internally made made sense. Oh, no. I have charts. Like, oh, yeah. Moving everybody and, like, around. And, like, Sarah Connor Chronicles is, like, I'm always going to stand for Love that. that. Love that. Yeah. That. So good. Um, Nina Headley is so good in that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> She's especially Nobody hot Nobody watched that. that but Kara Swisher and you, No. We, we, a lot of us, we were there a okay. lot of fans. Right. IO9 was a big fan. Um, so the plot is um, divided between two points of view. Um, one of the characters is an academic time traveler. And this is a world where time travel has existed forever. So mm-hmm. there's, it's not discovered. It's not some guy in his basement building a machine. Right. Um, so we're not back to the future-ish. We're not back to the future-ish. We're not like the original H.G. Uh, Wells' time machine novel. Uh, basically, geologists discover that there are time machines that are embedded in ancient rock formations mm-hmm. on the Earth's surface. And there's just a few of them. There's five that they know of. And ancient cultures knew about them. They've, you know, always been around, but they've just been interpreted differently. So 5,000 years ago, the ancient people using one of these portals thought of it as magic and mm-hmm. didn't realize that they were traveling in time. And sort of over the centuries, humans have gradually figured out, oh, these are time travel machines. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the characters who's a scientist says, you know— we don't even really know if these are time machines. They might be machines for something else, but it just so happens that they also can send people through mm-hmm. time. and um, Back and forth. They can only go into the past. Okay. And so when you go into the past, you can, of course, return to the exact time that you left, mm-hmm. or you can return to another point in the past, but you can't go into the future, as mm-hmm. far as they know. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, this is a discovery science. So they're mm-hmm. slowly learning about these machines mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of a la Stargate or something mm-hmm. where they don't understand all the buttons. 
And so maybe they could or go to the future. Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme. A- I know another all of them. Another fine classic. Film. We're going to discuss that in a minute, <laughs> but go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, There's so many good things in that film. It's so um, bad. I mean, Jean-Claude Remember Van Damme. Remember the guy touches himself and then implodes? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a, a a common trope in. I know in time it is. I don't know why though. Stories. Why would you Why would you not exist? Because you can't exist. I didn't even understand. We'll go. Yeah. We'll get into that. Okay, Paradoxes. So, so you can. I got that, but so. I, don't, I think it's just a word they made up to fuck with me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you, you can only go back in time. So you can only go back in time, and that was partly because I wanted the book to be dealing with these questions around revisionist history that we're mm-hmm. so focused on as a culture right now right, and absolutely. sort of saturated um, our Isn't all our our history ideas. revisionist history? It is, yeah. but I think there's this kind of myth that there's some untarnished, untouched history that you could mm-hmm. somehow get to, right. uh, perhaps if you had a time machine. The problem is that because there's all these people who are traveling back in time, not everyone can. You have to go through four years of a very rigorous process. So mm-hmm. it's really, it's kind of like going to grad school. Like the only people who really travel through time are people who are researchers that have four years to blow on this training or like spies Mm -hmm. or also it turns out insurance agents, which is a whole other thing. But what my characters are in the middle of, these are people who study history, is they find out that they're in an edit war over history with another group of people who they're not sure who they are. But um, my main character, Tess, is interested in trying to create a world where women do have access to abortion in the United States. She lives in a timeline where they don't. Uh, But every time she goes back and does things to try to make it possible for, um, yeah, to change things, that edit gets reverted. And so she, she realizes there's this other force out there. So she and her colleagues, who are a group of academics at UCLA, um, are trying to figure out who this is and um, gradually figure out— So why out, do you get the right to go back and change? Doesn't someone run this and say, don't change things? You're not supposed to. Right. And so this group of academics the have— the first thing you do. Yeah. It's so ridiculous when well, you say you're not so supposed to. So there's two ways—so because I— you know, because of the way time travel works in fiction, you have to come up with a lot of limitations, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, as a writer, I think it would be incredibly boring to have it be possible to just go back and shoot Hitler and have mm-hmm. everything change. So there's two limitations on uh, changing history in this book. One is that there's all these taboos and laws against it. You're not supposed to. You're mm-hmm. and, and these characters, if their academic institution finds out that they're doing that and not just observing history, they'll be fired. I mean, right. that would be, you know. So if you change history, it doesn't matter. But go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But if they get caught doing it. Okay. Um, and Or if they state that they're going to do it. If they yeah. if they say, that's my agenda is I want to change history, that yeah. means that they won't yeah. get any more grants and they're yeah. denied tenure and things like that. So there's institutional barriers. Um, there's taboos against it. Um, But also, it's really hard to change history, Mm -hmm. and it's just as hard as changing the present. And so when people go back in time, um, they can't just kill Hitler. And in Mm -hmm. fact, one of the characters says, if you kill Hitler, you just get Bittler or Zittler or Mittler. Mm -hmm. Some other person comes in and takes that person's place Mm -hmm. because Hitler is not just a special guy. He represents a huge social movement. Uh So what you have to do if you want to, say, prevent genocide during World War II is create a social movement that's as powerful or more powerful than, say, the rise of Nazism Mm -hmm. to combat that. 
And so when my characters go back in time and they're saying, okay, well, we're going to change history so that abortion is legal, that means they have to go back to the 19th century or even earlier and organize with women and other people who are interested in reproductive rights. And it takes years. Like, people Mm -hmm. go back in time and spend 20 years trying to change things, and it still might not work. Right. So it's just like building a movement um, at, at any time. So there's a lot of limitations to how much they can change, which was, to me, as a writer, really fun and kind of meaty because that's where the questions all come up. Like, if you want to change history, how do you do it? So you're saying that it's difficult to change history even with a time machine. Now, you know, you have books like Time and Again where you just don't let people meet. And mm-hmm. so the thing doesn't happen, in which you can think like that, right? Yeah, or you kill someone when they're a baby or, right. like, you make a new person happen because right. they parents meet. Um, and so— We find out that there are changes that you can make, like, for example, saving someone's life or killing Mm -hmm. someone. And again, they don't wind up making a huge amount of difference because of the fact that history turns out to be really um, driven by social movements. I see. Okay, Okay, that's your concept. I mean, then then there's the concept in the one that James, what's his name, was just in. It was a TV show about uh, stopping the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, so well, there was a short series, um, nine, you know, 12, 11, whatever the day John Kennedy was killed. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that one, but that's a you should see super it. common trope, Well, right? you can't change it. The history pushes back. He, every time he tries to stop it, mm-hmm. something like he gets in a car accident or blank, blank, blank. You yeah, know, history it's a, that's a sort back. of um, Peggy Sue got married kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. V- vision. There's there's several different versions of how time travel works, right? Like there's the, there's the one like the Ray Bradbury story, A mm-hmm. um, Sound of Thunder, where changing one tiny thing Can means— affect- huge changes, right? right. Yeah, you, you get—it's literally called the Possibly. butterfly effect because you step on a butterfly, you come back to the present, and there's uh, a fascist who's mm-hmm. become president of the U.S. Um, so I guess— what, Something just happened. Must I know. Have, so the butterfly effect finally finally took effect. Okay. Um, but then there's the idea that you can't change it at all, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you try to change it and, like, there's some kind of something holding you back. Um, and then there's the idea that you can, but it won't make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really a big that's fan. That's where you want it. That's, that's where, where I wanted to be. Yeah. And as I say, I'm a big fan of that. And um, there's a show on right now, Legends of Tomorrow, that basically deals with that. And these are characters who are going through time, and they're trying to prevent major changes. But they make little changes all the time, and mm-hmm. they don't end up changing right. everything. You know, like mm-hmm. one guy winds up getting a daughter that he never had before. Sorry, spoilers. Um, and then that doesn't—the only difference that makes is that he's a little bit happier. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we get a fascist president or, right. like, there's some right. black hole. So so in this, so go back to this book. So, sure. so they go back to try <laughs> to change abortion rights. So Tess is going back to mostly the 19th century to mm-hmm. try to change abortion rights. And she's working with a group called the Daughters of Harriet, who are her academic cohorts. And Harriet is— uh, Harriet Tubman, who has become a senator in the 19th century because it's in this alternate history, not only is abortion illegal, but women got the right to vote earlier. They got the right to vote the same time that freed slaves did. And mm-hmm. so they elected Harriet Tubman as a senator during Reconstruction. So she's a big hero to all the feminist characters mm-hmm. um, and a big hero to me. So that was fun. Um, and so the other part By of the By the way, book, what a sad life at the end. But go ahead. I know. My son did a whole report on it, and I didn't know stuff. Yeah. yeah. She had, well, anyway. In she my, got her head In hit. my timeline, mm-hmm. she Doesn't did not. Doesn't get her head hit with the pan. And Well, 
She does, but that's early in her life. That is, But yeah. she doesn't, for example, the government doesn't deny her, mm-hmm. um, you know, payment for serving in war. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she becomes a senator. She right. becomes very powerful, right. As, right. She, as she should have. Right. And so um, so some justice is done. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's a, it's a big inspiration. And then the other part of the book is focused on a high school girl named Beth um, who is stuck in time. She's a riot girl. She's living in the early 1990s. Uh, she's in um, a very conservative area where she doesn't really fit in. Her family is really abusive. And she's not a time traveler. She's just a regular kid who has to wait to escape her home by going to college. And so mm-hmm. it's just about her life. And what happens is because she's living in this extreme situation and she and her friends are these tough riot girls, they accidentally start murdering rapists. Um, I mean, it really does start by accident, yeah. but then they kind of were like, well, that was kind of cool. Maybe mm-hmm. we should go out and try to, like, find some rapists mm-hmm. to kill. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it becomes this really twisted story about um, sort of female friendship in high school and mm-hmm. what does it mean to um, to rebel and what does it mean to try to change the system. And so really we have two characters, one Tess, who is trying to change things by organizing and going back in time and doing things in a very peaceful way as much as possible. And then Beth, whose friends are using violence to try to change the system. But they're not time traveling. They're just They're the just time. murdering. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're yeah. just living in time. But slowly, um, Beth starts to realize that she's getting visits from a time traveler. Mm-hmm. And it, who turns out to be Tess? This isn't really a spoiler. Mm-hmm. And so um, she and Tess have to kind of figure out, she has to kind of figure out why Tess is visiting her. And Tess is sort of gradually figuring out why she's drawn to keep trying to help Beth. And they their lives are sort of entangled. Mm-hmm. And so there's a central mystery of the book, which is um, one of the mysteries is, can you change history? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other let's, one is, what is the connection? Let's talk about in the, in the biggest time is this idea of revisionist history and the part that technology plays in it, the, mm-hmm. the, what is our history? That nothing, you know, there's the famous line from the book on uh, this Facebook movie, you know, the Internet's written in ink and it, nothing can, everything is there. All the the proof is there. and At the same time, it can be so badly manipulated that is it the truth. So it creates sort of two things. You finally do, like, we don't really know what happened in, with Cleopatra. We don't know everything because there's no record of it. There's some records. Well, we have some stuff that, like, some stuff. white dudes said about her. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So we have that. And then we have, you know, I was just, I was when I was in Israel, I went out to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's that, and they can hardly read it, and who knows what was going on with this crazy group that was out there in the desert. And so, but now we have all this. We have so much of a, like, a history of everybody, the whole world. Um, and yet it has enormous implications of manipulation. So can you talk a little bit about how you look at where are we with the idea of what history is? So uh, in the novel, I talk a lot about the idea of edit wars, and mm-hmm. I was very careful to use those words because I was thinking a lot about Wikipedia and mm-hmm. how history is preserved on Wikipedia and how it is a kind of collective process. But it's also, as as many people have reported and as, as people have shown through research, it's a very uh, violent process, mm-hmm. and it's a process of conflict in which certain people tend to win out over others. Right. And so there's very much uh, a kind of minority report of history that you can read, usually in like— You're referring the, to the great movie with the non-great Tom Cruise, but go ahead. 
<laughs> um, but there is, uh, yeah, I am. But also there's a minority report, like a real-life type, right. you know, the, the term comes from a real thing mm-hmm. of, you know, evidence provided by kind of the party that isn't in power or the losing party. Mm-hmm. And on Wikipedia, you can usually see that in the revision history and the notes. You can see people having these debates and often find facts that have been suppressed. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that, and that's exactly how history is written. Um, ultimately, you know, over time, a lot of those notes and a lot of those um, traces of the minority views of history will be erased and will be left only with what, you know— As the, always. As always. Mm-hmm. Um, and will be left with what sort of the dominant group at Wikipedia has deemed to be a reasonable version of history. And— I always find it really dangerous when people, you know, hold up Wikipedia as this great example of like, but look, it's the people's history. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I mean, studies have shown that it's actually a very small group of extremely homogenous people who are dictating what is on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. a group of active users, and then other people are not really getting their voices heard. Self-selected and active users. very self-selected, but also people who who don't fit in get driven out. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of reports of of people who, you know, women especially getting driven out of kind of the Wikipedia elite um, and, you know, wi- women's um, entries on Wikipedia being deleted, even if they eventually go on to win Nobel Prizes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We know just from watching in real time um, how history is really only one—history as written is generally just one piece of a much bigger picture. And I think that there's a lot of, I would say, kind of misguided utopian thinking in tech— that because we have the storage capacity to hold potentially every point of view on every historical event, that therefore we are doing it. Mm -hmm. And I always point out to people, you know, we've thought that at many points in history, like we thought, oh, we've got all these books and Mm -hmm. somehow magically they won't burn. Or we've got all this, um, you know, footage on film, but somehow it won't erode over time. I mean, the storage media that we're using for our history, our digital history now is not going to last forever. It's going to last, if we're lucky, you know, what's the lifetime of a hard drive? You know, a couple decades. Mm -hmm. So each time we want to preserve that history, someone or a group of people has to go in and say like, all right, we're going to preserve this chunk of the internet with our Wayback Machine, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have to, you know, pick and choose like which things we copy over into the next set of you know, massive servers. servers, Yeah, Yeah, whatever storage we're using. And each time that it's copied over, just like those ancient monks 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago, they're going to miss things or they're just going to choose not to copy some things. Right. And uh, don't even get me started on how Sappho's poetry got lost. We're going to talk about that. When we get back, <laughs> we will talk about that. We're here with Annalie Newitz, the author of The Future of Another Timeline. We're talking about time travel and history. Uh, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about that concept of what is our history in the Internet age and how we cope with it. And also what interesting things are happening in science, which they cover. We're here with Annalie Newitz, the author of The Future of Another Timeline, also a very well-known science journalist uh, as well as a novelist, um, writes columns for The New York Times and things like that. Let me—I'm going to shift you a little bit. What are you interested in right now? And then I want to get back to the idea of simulation and history in a second. But what what are the things that interest you in the science space right now? 
that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I am personally really interested right now in history and in archaeology and paleontology, evolutionary biology, um, all of these fields that put together can kind of give us a picture of where the planet's been, where humanity has been. Um, And I just finished an extremely long project. It took me about five years, and it's finally going to be a book coming out next year, Abandoned Cities. The book is called Four Lost Cities. Hmm. Um, I love those stories. I do, too. Every time the New York Times write was one, I just eat it up. Oh, I— There was a Mayan city in the middle of nowhere the other day, and— Totally. It's super fascinating. And um, so I, it was actually hard for me to narrow down the four cities I wanted to do. What did you do. pick? So I picked uh, Çatalhöyük, which mm-hmm. is a Neolithic city in central Turkey. Uh, it's in the Cappadocia region. And that was a 9,000-year-old city. It's one of the earliest settlements that could be called a city. There's still debate. Is it a mm-hmm. city or not a city? I think it's a city. Pompeii, which is an obvious one, although it's really not obvious in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It turned out to have a super interesting afterlife Mm -hmm. because most people escaped. Um, It was not, you know, a total um, slaughter. And Angkor, which which was at the center of the Khmer Empire about a thousand years ago. It's located today in Cambodia. And uh, you probably know it from Tomb Raider. And um, and then my last city was um, Cahokia, which is located today in southern Illinois. It's right across the Mississippi from St. Louis, kind of in parts of it were actually underneath uh, East St. Louis. Um, and that was the biggest indigenous city in North America uh, about a thousand years ago also. And um, really the biggest city in North America until Europeans came. It was enormous and it's full of these huge earthen pyramids that are just incredible. And um, now it's a World Heritage Site. So you should go visit next time you're in St. Louis. So what attracted this? Because, you know, I, techno- what is interesting to me about a lot of this stuff is technology is helping us really see it, totally. like physically see it um, through li- LIDAR, I guess, and radar and all kinds of things. I'm yep. not an expert on this, but... No, uh, LIDAR is incredibly important. Um, ground-penetrating radar, um, new developments in um, chemistry where we can... Aging, like- yeah, where we can do dating on stuff. That's what I mean, dating. Yeah, but also um, things like reading um, chemical residues in cooking pots to see what people were eating. Um, we can look at um, residues in people's tooth enamel to see where they grew up versus where they died, which mm-hmm. actually gives us tons of information about immigration patterns or migration patterns, sure. um, which is really valuable when you're studying cities because cities are actually usually full of immigrants. And so mm-hmm. it's really fun to see um, how far away people came to get to a lot of these cities. And I got really interested in it because um, I love cities and um, people have been asking a lot about cities that are dying. It's a mm-hmm. kind of a perennial you know, yeah. topic for people. People love ruin porn. Um, you know, you hear a lot about like the idea that Detroit is dying. And I got really interested in historical precedents for that mm-hmm. and and kind of asking like things are well, always dying. Yeah, things are always dying. And like, is Detroit really dying? I visited Detroit and there's a huge revitalization movement there. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted Or it to- goes another place. It you know goes what I mean? Place. It's so interesting. I have an ongoing argument with Amanda about this. She's always like, oh, this is closed. I'm like, yeah, so what? Something else will open. And we have a totally different viewpoint. I like the idea that you're walking around New York City and other people lived here that you don't know who they are, which is why the H.G. Wells time machine, when he's sitting in the time machine and he goes by and he sees everything back to the Neanderthal to now, and he's sitting there as it's changing. I love that idea. It's like, so what? Yeah. Or, so what? 
And that was kind of what yeah. I wanted to do. Right. And in fact, I actually, in the middle of researching Four Lost Cities, I wrote Future of Another Timeline, partly because I was so frustrated by, mm-hmm. you know, the archaeology, which is so, you know, the remains of these places are so incomplete. There's mm-hmm. so much we don't know and that we'll never know, right. no matter how great our technology well, gets. Like, remember Sleeper, where he tells the— Yeah. I, I hate to talk about Woody Allen, but that was a great movie. It yeah, was, no, it's one where, of my favorites. Where they show him objects and he makes stuff up about mm-hmm. common objects. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's that's exactly, in some cases, I think, you know, we, we do. We just speculate a lot about what things mean. Or how people lived. Yeah. So, you know, to do great archaeology, you would need a time machine. But, you know, in the meantime, we have what we have. So, so you're um, writing about how they got lost or that— well, they're never lost, right? right? That's the whole point. And and in fact, what you were saying about the fact that they just move or the people in them move somewhere else is really important because uh, one of the things I learned in researching the book is that archaeologists don't talk about collapse anymore. Um, that's a very kind of mid-20th century or even a 19th century idea that civilizations collapse and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. What really happens is people migrate. You mm-hmm. know, a city may die, but the population of that city goes elsewhere. That's what's so interesting about Pompeii mm-hmm. is that now there's a lot of evidence that we can use to track where the survivors of Pompeii went, which was generally just up the street. Like, mm-hmm. they would just go to other cities um, on the Bay of Naples. Um, a lot of people went to Naples, in fact. Um, and we can see that based on, you know, grave markers and family names and inheritance records mm-hmm. and receipts, like literal receipts, people taking uh, money that they had invested um, while they were in Pompeii and then kind of reinvesting it elsewhere. So we see that, you know, yes, Pompeii, of course, was destroyed completely, and it was just a toxic mess. You couldn't have have really dug it out or done anything with it. But its culture continued, and the people who lived there continued on. Um, And the same thing happens at Angkor. You know, a lot of um, the people who leave that city uh, continued to be Khmer. And, I mean, people are still Khmer, and people Mm -hmm. speak Khmer today in Cambodia, and the culture has total continuity. There's no kind of collapse. It's just that we have different countries and different cities now. So what you're talking about a lot is the mix of analog with what remains, right? And mm-hmm. so in this in the digital space, it's hard to know what remains. Do you think about that? Like how, what? All the time. <laughs> I was thinking, I think, you know, I'm obsessed with death, as you might know. I talk about it a lot. Not obsessed. I'm focused on it. Uh-huh. Um, it's and a like, thing. And we I all was deal thinking, with it. Like, I was thinking the other day, I was like, what happens to all my emails when I die? Should I destroy them now? Should I do this? Which, what is it? Where will it be? Or will it just be lost because no one can access it? What happens to my text? What happens to, you know what I mean? And before, you used to be concerned that way about letters and, and things like that. You know, how do people establish a timeline going forward? Yeah. It's a really interesting scientific. Well, and also studying of humanity question. Yeah, I mean, I think what I've learned from looking at these older cities and looking at history is that, you know, there's certain things you can expect in the digital age to happen. I mean, some of it is that we will develop um, digital funerary practices Mm -hmm. that will become norms. And so when people are preparing for death, they'll be thinking about, like, what do I want to do with my email? What do I want to do with my cloud? What do I want to do with all this stuff Mm -hmm. that I've stored, my photos and everything? And so that will just become part of your will or it will become part of that preparation. Or your loved ones will have very simple instructions that they're going to follow. You know, like, so if you die without making those plans, there'll still be kind of norms in place for what to Mm -hmm. do. And we already have that, right? Like, we now have ways of turning Facebook pages into memorial pages and Mm -hmm. Twitter uh, accounts into memorial accounts. And so we, we already are starting those norms. But then there's that other question about 
the data that you're not thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I sent a text 20 years ago. I don't even use that service anymore. Like, what happened to all my AOL texts? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I think, again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, each time a company or an organization has a blob of data, Mm -hmm. it's stored on a physical on physical media like which we tend to forget because of all this cloud talk it's like mm-hmm. as if it's just floating out mm-hmm. there you know not like actually in a it server is. farm it somewhere yes yes floating. it's totally safe it's in heaven or whatever mm-hmm. right so <laughs> um it's not you know in Kansas in like a giant server farm so if that company goes under right that has all your data Maybe your data dies. Maybe they sell it off to a company that's developing AI that wants, like, examples of natural language in English Mm -hmm. from 20 years ago or something. Um, Who knows, right? So we don't have a lot of control over what's going to happen. And um, one of the things that I kind of threw into my novel Autonomous is Mm -hmm. that there's a character who's a robot whose face has um, been—she's a humanoid robot, and she looks just like a person, but her face is based on a face that they took from an old database of faces that they bought, that the company Mm -hmm. that makes her type of robot was just like, I want a database full of, like, pretty white girl faces— And so she's just, somehow they've licensed that face for her. And it's like, who knows whose face that was? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's someone who died 100 years ago. Right. So I think there will be stuff like that for real. Like, that Mm -hmm. there will be just chunks of personal data that get passed around and used for Sort of like Henrietta, uh, the the DNA in that one. Yeah, Henrietta Lacks, exactly. And I think, actually, that's a really good analogy because, Mm -hmm. you know, it really took quite— you know, a lot of reporting to excavate who she had been, you mm-hmm. know, and, and yet all these people were benefiting from her cell line. And so that could happen. Like there could be, you know, in 200 years, there might be like a bunch of little Kara robots running around because there will people be. were like, of course, because people say, I well, shall she be is a generic individual <laughs> from this time in human development. Um, we have records of her voice. We have all this digital, you know, information about her. She must have been some sort of queen or leader. Um, <laughs> We're gonna, you know, I just interviewed uh, Jeanette Winterson about her book Frankenstein, which is about, you know, it's about temporal bodies, bodies being temporary vessels for everything else. So, and she's, of course, talking about downloading your brain and and continuing it into the future, which is kind of a fascinating topic. Uh, that's very science fictiony, but actually somewhat possible at some point. I suspect, I, you know, might be possible. Yeah, no, um, it will be. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a big upload person. Yeah. Like, I'm not really—I'm not a big believer in it. I, I also—I think it's much more complicated than we realize. I also think—I don't know. When you think about the substrates we would use for your brain, mm-hmm. um, you know, imagine, like, just getting, like, a silent update on your brain. Like, it just feels like you'd be—you'd literally be running on the Google Cloud or you'd be yeah. running on the Amazon Cloud. It would be. And, like, you couldn't remember certain songs unless you paid money for them. That's right. And, like, you know, I That's just— That's exactly right. It feels like, you know, mm, I don't know. Do we want that? I don't know. We'll find out. I don't know. I want to finish <laughs> up by talking about uh, what's your next novel about? Do you have a topic? Uh, is it simulation? Is it that we're in a simulation, which I'm now convinced after no. laughing at Elon Musk we right not, to his face? We are not in a simulation. Um, but what is what interests you right now when you're thinking about this idea of what to write about in science or, so or science fiction? I've just started working on my next novel, which is also for Tor, my lovely publisher, and it's called The Terraformers, mm-hmm. and it's set in a far future world, a sort of a transhuman uh, future about 50,000 years from now. And uh, it's so we're about, still here. Well, for some value of us, mm-hmm. and humans have 
continued evolving. We've affected our own evolution. We have lots of different morphologies and body types and mm-hmm. cyborg crap, all the things, you know, any kind of in and banks crap you can imagine, mm-hmm. it's, it's in there. But this is about um, a real estate company that is developing a planet for nostalgia, um, the nostalgia market for people who really want to live on an Earth world. It's a West and, world. Um, it's not Westworld because it's an actual planet right, with right. real humans on it, mm-hmm. um, or it will have real humans um, and people who want to port their brains into, like, a homo sapiens body type. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is, yeah, I guess it is like Westworld. They're recreating Earth, mm-hmm. um, but it will be modern culture on Earth. Right. And so they're developing the planet. And so it's a multi-generational epic, sort of like a Western wow. uh, in a sense, where we um, start with— uh, the very, very first generation of Homo sapiens that are first just developing the ecosystems on the planet. And then we go through um, the final section is about gentrification and how there's these cities that grow up and, like, how do they deal with gentrification on this completely fabricated world? Um, and it deals a lot with, like, water treaties and settler colonialism and what does that mean? But it's also going to have, like, cool hover moose things. <laughs> I just decided. Moose I just things. decided that. Instead of, like, land speeders, they should have cyborg moose that are hovercraft that talk. Because why not? Why not? It's the far I future. I just end on that. I love Did you see moose. the Star Wars then? There was— there I did see the Star Wars. Yak. The yeah. Star Wars. Yes, it's true. There's a yak in there. There is a yak, but it's not a cyber yak. No, no, it's just a yak. And it's not a hover yak. It's a yak. So I feel like— I'm like but it was, way ahead of the curve. The yak with my was hover on moose. a spaceship, so it was hovering. It, it what? That's true. I right? feel like this is a new theme in, yeah. in Star Wars because in the Mandalorian they right. put the the blurgs on yeah. their spaceship, the fish oh, creatures. You would do that? I mean, no. Why would you put a blurg on a spaceship? You'd put your dog on a spaceship. It's you'd a bring blurg. It's, it's so huge. It's a giant you, you fish it. that's like ten feet tall. People, no, I am not going to take my blurgs to space. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> Anna Lee. Anna Lee is a really great writer. You should read them in the New York Times. They have really fresh ideas ideas about science and sort of what's coming next. And their book is called The Future of Another Timeline. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for uh, having me. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Eric America. My producer is Eric Johnson at Hey Hey ESJ. Annalie, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me on the web at AnnalieNewitz.com or mm-hmm. you can follow me on Twitter at Annalie N. Very nice. Anyway, and you can find these books all over the place. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>